Uh, Good morning. If you haven't already, let me invite you to join me uh, in your copy of God's Word. If you would find the last verse of the Gospel of John. So we'll start here in just a moment at John 21, verse 25. It's a special uh, component this morning, to me at least, and I think to us as a body, as we complete our study of John's Gospel uh, that we have been walking through for such a long time now. Uh, It may have felt like an odd place to stop, Last time we were here to, to end at verse 24, uh, because it leaves just one verse remaining in the book. But I've done that in, in the service of what we're going to do together this morning. Because verse 25 reminds us of a reality that John also described in John 20 and verse 30, which is that we have not been given a reporting of everything that Jesus did in, in this gospel as we've gone through it. And what that means is that John has painted a particular picture for us uh, in what he has shared. So verse 25 here will remind us of that and will help us uh, then to end our study of John's gospel in the only way that I can imagine ending it, which is to take this morning to stop and look backwards together on what God has shown us as we've worked through this. And I want to describe what we have seen like this. I want to suggest to you that what we've seen is that as we stand before our Savior, as we stand before Jesus, we are standing before both the perfect representative of mankind and the perfect representation of God. We have been shown the God-man, Jesus Christ, in all the relatability and accessibility of his humanity, as well as in all the eternal divine authority and power that is present. John, in a unique way, has shown us those realities to this degree. And so this morning, we we make the attempt to draw together the picture that John has painted for us in this gospel. That's our goal here. And we'll take each of them, each of those aspects one at a time, and look at them, and then we'll end by putting them together, just as John has revealed them to us. Uh, So to this end, I'd have us begin this morning, as we always do, with the public reading of God's Word. Uh, But we'll do it in a bit of an unusual way. I want us to read from two texts. So we'll start with John 21, 25. But if you would also have uh, marked out uh, to turn to Hebrews chapter 1. We'll read John 21, 25, and then immediately shift to Hebrews one and read the first 13 verses. I think we'll find it's a helpful place for us to hear from, to prepare our minds for this exploration of Christ our God incarnate. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, again beginning at John 21:25. If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? He ends his gospel in this way. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And now here what the writer to the Hebrews 
says in the first 13 verses of chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are wor the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Speaking of the book of Hebrews, one of the ideas that Hebrews makes much of is the real and present benefits that have come to us in the humanity of our Lord. He speaks to us there concerning the Christ. He speaks to us of nearness and accessibility and sympathy. What have we seen from John's gospel? To that effect, what has John shown us as he's given us the picture of a Messiah who has taken on flesh? This is what we begin by remembering, by looking back through. We'll, I'll reference a number of places in John's Gospel, and you're free to, to try to find some of those. But for the most part, you can just hear them and remember what it is that we've seen together. And as we start by thinking on this line, we remember that one of the very big pictures that John has shown us here of our Lord has been a picture of true friendship. Jesus has been shown to be a friend of sinners. But we can get much more specific than that. And given the picture that we've found here, we must be more specific. Jesus has not just been shown to us to be a friend of sinners. He's been shown to be the right friend of sinners. The kind of friend that sinners need. Let me bring back some memories to our minds here. Remember, 
how he treated those he loved. Remember how he interacted with those he loved in exactly the ways that they needed to be interacted with in the moment. Sometimes we saw from our Lord such displays of patience and gentleness. Think of the gentleness we've seen even recently as he restored Peter after his fall, after his his, uh, unfaithfulness to his Lord. Think of the patience that we saw in Christ as he sat and ate and fellowshiped with Peter on the shore of the lake. Or his gentleness and his patience in general throughout the gospel as he progressively taught and revealed himself to his disciples. Those men who were so slow to understand, so stubborn in many ways. As he led them and loved them and was their friend, we saw great gentleness and patience from our Lord. But we've also seen And at just the right times, we've seen a display of incredible strength and resoluteness from Christ. Patience is not the word that comes to mind in the very helpful, very significant moment in chapter 20 when he spoke to Thomas and he said, Thomas, you have seen enough. It is time to stop being unbelieving. We didn't see something we would call patience. We saw something we would call strength and resolution in chapter 1 when he commanded Peter in that very sensitive moment. Peter, what is that to you? You follow me. We have seen him know exactly how to treat his friends, exactly how to handle them. We've seen from our Lord in this gospel, we've seen the tremendous care and protection that he gave to his friends. And we've seen that shift to be exactly what is most needed at the time. Think of what we saw in chapter 18 in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he stepped forward to the crowd that was coming to take him and would probably have done great harm to his disciples. We saw our Lord step forward and stun them to the ground in order to secure the safe release of his friends. We saw him actively care for them and protect them as their friend. But we've also seen in this gospel, in his friendship, we've seen the absence of a desire to protect them from the things that would bring God glory. In other words, he has been a friend who has prioritized his friend's true confession over their temporal comfort. In chapter 11, he was called He was called a friend to Lazarus. He's said to have loved Lazarus. And he hears that Lazarus is sick and he deliberately waits to go to him until he has died. Do you remember that? Because he was not at all interested in protecting Lazarus from God's plans to put his glory on display in his life. He never cared about his friend's temporal comfort more than he did about their place in the hands of the Father. Another way to put that would be to say that we've never seen our Lord hate his friends by idolizing them. This is the kind of friend that sinners must have. And it's the friend that we have in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. These very human displays 
have been so helpful to us to see as we've watched our Lord walk through his earthly ministry. And it's been helpful to us for John to show us this, the way that, the, that Christ in his perfect humanity has interacted with us, how this so benefits and helps us. But that angle itself is only one side of the coin when it comes to what John has shown us about the significance of Christ's human nature. His human nature was not simply useful in him being something toward us. The humanity of our Lord has also been crucial in his being something for us toward God. We've seen that very clearly in this gospel as well. Here's what we can say about that. We can say that Jesus of Nazareth, this man whose birth we are poised to celebrate in this season, Jesus of Nazareth has been shown to be the perfectly obedient covenant partner that God has required. Sometimes when we think of Christ in his obedience on earth, sometimes we're just reflecting on his actions in a general way, which is, which is good to do. And which John does. So we hear things in this gospel, like John 4, 34, that for Christ, his, his food is to do the will of his Father in heaven. Or John 5, 19, when he says that he only does what he sees his Father doing. Or John 6, 38, that he has come not to do his own will, but the will of the Father. We learn in those statements something about the perfection of Jesus' obedience as he walked this earth. But in speaking of him, as I just did, in, in talking about Jesus as the perfectly obedient covenant partner, we have to pay special attention to the ways that Christ is revealed to be what the Bible calls in 1 Corinthians 15, the last Adam. You remember that text as Paul describes the first Adam, Adam in the garden, and the last Adam, our Lord Jesus? He's tapping into something there that is crucial for us to understand and that we see on display in Christ in this gospel. Think with me about this a moment. The Bible calls Adam the covenant head of the human race. He was the first man. Paul goes to great lengths to describe how as the covenant head, it was through him that sin entered the human race. And in him, when he fell, all fell in him. That's possible because of his status as the head the covenant head of his people. In that role, we saw in the garden, back in Genesis, we saw Adam exercise three roles. This is how we talk about it historically. We saw Adam be three roles on behalf of the entire human race. That of prophet, priest, and king. Adam was prophet. He was spoken to by God even before Eve's creation and he was to impart that revelation to her and to those who would come. Adam was a prophet. Adam was a priest in the garden. He's charged in that holy place to, quote, work and keep the garden. The place where God's very presence dwelt among them. Those two words, to work and keep, are the very same tasks that are commanded to the priests in the Old Testament in a synagogue context. As Adam is charged in that way, we see him being charged in the role of priest. Adam was a king. 
That is to say, Adam is charged to rule, to rule over the earth in his role as God's image bearer, his kingly role. Now, all of this is what man was intended to be from creation. And isn't it interesting? It's exactly the threefold way in which Adam failed in the garden as well. He failed to teach Eve God's commands. He failed to keep the garden pure. He failed to conquer God's enemies. Now think of that in relation to Jesus. What do we see of our Lord in these ways, even if we limit our search to John's gospel? Jesus is declared to be a prophet. In fact, not a prophet, but what? The prophet. So we hear in John 6, 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And they say it again in chapter 7. They've always been waiting for one who Moses prophesied would come, a prophet like him that they were to watch for and to obey. And the people rightly identify in Jesus. He's here. We find Christ to be a priest. And in fact, our great high priest, as the book of Hebrews describes him. In John, the account of Jesus' earthly ministry begins with Jesus cleansing the temple, just as priests were supposed to do. Purifying it of sin, distraction, detriments to the right worship of God. And of course, very famously, in John chapter 17, we find our Lord praying a priestly prayer of intercession for his people. Jesus is revealed, even in John's gospel, to be our great high priest. We find him as well to be a king, don't we? And again, that word a is an awkward thing to put it. We, we, we need to replace that. He is not shown to be a king. He is not shown to be even a king in Israel that's holding the place as they're waiting for the true promised son of David to come. No, Jesus is proclaimed to be the king that they have been waiting for. The king that all of those kings have been pointing to. It was one of the first declarations explicitly about him that we heard in this gospel. John 1.49, this is Nathaniel's conclusion. He proclaims, you are the king of Israel. It's what the crowds shouted out in John 12 at the triumphal entry. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And no sooner, no sooner do the crowds shout that than John adds a prophetic reference to the Old Testament. He says, just as it is written, quote, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Prophet, priest, and king. The joining together of all three offices that bring God and man into relationship with each other. The, the expressions of the very image-bearing role that man was given. But notice something about them. All human offices. Prophet, priest, king. These are human offices. It's in these ways that we see our Lord displayed as the true man. As last Adam. And John has shown those to us in what he has told us about the ministry and life of our Lord on this earth. 
But now let's take that and let's add something else to it as well. And then we'll bring them both together. Add to what we've just seen that John has shown Jesus not only in his human capacities, his true human capacities, but he has very plainly, more plainly than the other Gospels, in fact, shown Jesus to be the mountain peak of God's own self-revelation. It was foreshadowed and declared in the first verses of this gospel, wasn't it? This was how he began for us. The very first thing John said to us was to declare Christ to be the word of God, who was with God and who was God. Verse 1. One through whom all things came into being, and apart from whom nothing has come into being that has come into being. Verse 3. Jesus as the light that gives life, verse 9, who shines out divine glory, verse 14. From the very introduction here of the book, this one who became flesh and dwelt among us is declared to be God and thus declared to be the one who reveals God to us. We've seen so many pictures of this throughout this study. Jesus is shown to be the one by whom the ceremonial purification waters of the Old Testament are turned into rich wine and celebration and consummation in chapter 2. He told the Samaritan woman in chapter 4 that his arrival is marking the end of the time when true worship must happen at the temple in Jerusalem. Why? Because with his coming, the purpose of the temple itself Remember, the temple is the place where God's presence dwells on earth. The purpose of the temple itself has come to an end, has come to its completion, because now God is among us in this earth. He is walking among us. In chapter 6, verse 19, Jesus walked atop the sea as on dry ground, in exactly the way that God is said to do in Job 9, verse 8. Jesus can say to Philip in chapter 14, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And in John 17, verse 5, he can speak of glory that he shared in with the Father, quote, before the world began. He was in the beginning with God. He is God. He does only what God can do and says only what God can say. And he shines with divine light and returns to shared glory with the Father from before the dawn of time. This is who we have seen throughout this gospel. And yet we're talking about a man whose birth narrative is carefully given to us in the, in the text of Scripture. We're talking about a man who grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with men. Luke 2.52 talking about a person who successfully served in human offices and who bled and died on a cross. What do we have here? Well, we have exactly what Thomas proclaimed at the end of chapter 20. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And friends, when he said that, that was no simple repetition of the same idea twice. It is two declarations. 
in a world where their very coinage had the phrase printed, Caesar is Lord. In that world, Thomas proclaims, Jesus is Lord. He is the one that when I see him, I will bow down. To him is my ultimate allegiance found. And the one I'm talking about, I just touched his hands and his side. And yet I can look at him and say, my God, my God. Thomas looked at him. Thomas said to him, it says, my God. This is a tremendous gift that John has given us in the way he has so clearly shown us the dual nature of Christ. Fully God, fully man. One person. It's a gift. And I'm going to suggest another way to put this gift, to phrase it, what he's given us in this gospel. This one may seem a little bit strange, but we can say it like this. Uh, We have been shown in this gospel that the covenant promise that God made to Abraham way back in Genesis 15 was actually keepable after all. For thousands of years to that moment, this had been a profound mystery, but not after the realities that John just told us about in this gospel. Back in Genesis 15, God entered into covenant promises with Abraham. The book of Galatians tells us they were always pointing ahead to Christ. These are promises that had in view a fulfillment in the seed of Abraham, in the coming of Christ, as the inheritor of all the promises God made to his people. But when God is giving Abraham those promises, Abraham asks a question. He wonders, how can he be sure that these promises will come to pass? And what God did in response was amazing and confusing. He has, do you remember this? He has Abraham prepare a covenant ritual in that chapter. He has him gather a heifer, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And he kills them. He cuts them in half. He lays the halves in a row with some space in between. And the idea here, this is common to their time. This is well understood, this motion. This is a covenant ritual. The parties who are making agreement walk between those cut animals, and they're demonstrating and declaring their willingness to be cut in half like these animals if they fail to keep their end of the covenant. It is a very visual, a very bloody, a very physical symbol and promise. But do you remember what happens next in that chapter? He has Abraham prepare this, and then he puts Abraham into a deep sleep at the side, and he shows him then in a vision the playing out of this scene. He shows the covenant being enacted. And what Abraham sees is he sees two images, not one, two, two parties walking through the midst. They are two pictures that both have significance to Israel in their past, and the Exodus especially. They both are manifestations of the presence of God, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. What Abraham sees is he sees those two images passing through the midst of the pieces. 
and you see it and you think, how can this be? What's happening is God is promising to ensure both sides of this covenant faithfulness between God and man. One man wrote about this and he characterized God's message to Abraham like this. He said, imagining God's words here to Abraham, if this covenant is broken, Abraham, for whatever reason, for my unfaithfulness or yours, I will pay the price. If you or your descendants for whom you are making this covenant fail to keep it, I will pay the price in blood. And this man writing this depiction finishes like this. He says, and at that moment, Almighty God pronounced the death sentence on his son Jesus. What can God be promising in a picture like that? How, could it, how is it even possible for God to keep this oath that he has just made to Abraham? He's promising to suffer the maledictory curse of this covenant. That's impossible. It's impossible by two different criteria. Number one, this is inherently physical by definition, this curse. And number two, justice demands that the punishment for sin be received by the guilty party. Will the God of all justice not do right? How can this possibly happen? We've just found the answer to this in the study of John's gospel. What we have discovered, what God has revealed to us, is that the triune God has planned from the beginning to put on display the perfections of his love and his mercy and his justice and his righteous wrath towards sin by pouring his wrath out on sin, wherever it be found. But by calling to himself a people who he will save by grace, whose sins, in accord with the perfect justice and righteousness of God, whose sins cannot be ignored, far be it from God ever to do such a thing. But instead, the plan of this triune God was for the second person, for the Son, to come and clothe himself in their humanity to be one of them, in fact, to be their representative, to be a new covenant head of a people, exactly as Adam did, so that for those whom he represents before God, their judgment would fall on him instead of on them. What we're describing here is the central message of our faith. This is the Christian declaration. This is the gospel. It's, the, it's a claim you can find no copy of anywhere in the world. It is the pure, Trinitarian, incarnational message of the hypostatic union of Christ, two natures in one person. And it's the picture that God has used John to give us in this profound way. John plays an outsized role in showing us how this has happened. To be sure, our friend Paul will work to help us understand, to the extent that we've been given to understand this mystery. 
So Paul's going to go at it in Philippians and in Colossians and in Hebrews to speak to this nature of Christ. But more than anyone else, this is the glory that John serves us with to hold out to us. My friends, just think of it. This is the extent of what has been undertaken to secure your forgiveness. This is the mind, this is the friend that has been given to you. The one who, if your trust and faith is in him alone, has become your righteousness before a holy God. This is your friend who loves for God's glory to be on display in your life. This is your friend who left heaven and endured all the humiliation of his incarnate life. This is the one you're really thinking of when you're caught in a moment of decision, a moment torn with temptation, when you're caught between competing voices. This is the one whose voice you ignore when you give in to your own heart's desires. The Apostle John says to us, see him. See the glory. See the mystery. See the friendship of this one who is your God and who has become your prophet, priest, and king. And may that view linger in our sight. What we've done here this morning is we've tried to stand back and see the picture that John has given us of our Lord. And we've ended with words like hypostatic union. Uh oh. This is the way we are ending our study of the Gospel of John. But let's talk for just a moment about where we will go from here because there's some, there's some connections that we're going to continue to explore. What we're going to do now to finish out the year is we're going to linger for several weeks on the subject that we've been drawn to think about this morning. So throughout the rest of December, we're going to prepare ourselves for our Christmas celebration by taking a hard look at this very topic, at the Bible's testimony about the Incarnation, which means we're going to be asking a very old question. Christians have wrestled to understand the Bible's testimony about the Incarnation since the beginning. In fact, the, the first four great ecumenical church councils that laid out the historic confessions of our faith all dealt with aspects of the Incarnation. Christ, God, becoming man, taking on flesh. We're going to think about those things. We're going to ask the question that Anselm famously asked at the end of the 11th century. Why the God-man? Why did God become man? We'll try to answer that question in four parts, and that's what December holds for us. It's where we're going. In the new year, then, we will begin a study of the book of Philippians together. And the more I've been preparing for that, and the more excited I have been becoming, I'm convinced that the content of that book is going to be a particular and timely kindness to us from God in this year to come. 
So I would encourage you to consider some repetitive reading of Philippians as you're able, as you're getting ready for the new year. But this is where we're going, together as a church family. And I hope that you'll be in prayer for us as we draw near to that. But let's close this morning in prayer together. Would you bow your heads with me? God, what a gift you have given us to lead us as one body together through this study of John's gospel. In a very real sense, we have no words to express the wonder of the plan that you have accomplished in your son. And as we think of what you've shown us, we ask for many things. We ask you, God, would you make our Lord's definition of friendship our definition? Would you lead us to be the friend that our loved ones really need? Gentle and patient when it pleases you, no matter how hard it gets. Firm and selfless when love calls for it, no matter how hard it gets. We pray for you to continue your work in us, to make us more and more like our Savior, whom we have seen this morning. But mostly, what you have shown us would lead us to look away from ourselves altogether, to forget ourselves. And so what I ask is that you would use these sights that you have shown us to fundamentally alter our affections. Would you give us hearts that burn with passion for the honor of our Savior? Would you increase our affections for him to such a weight that competing affections are simply pushed off the stage? That when we are tempted or when we are wronged or in any such situation, our thoughts would go not to ourselves, but to him. We ask you, Father, to transform us by the renewing of our minds. That we as your people may be increasingly characterized by sober-mindedness and peace and joy. We pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen.